0: We are always trying to improve BOOM, and we couldn't do it without you. So thanks to your feedback on a recent survey, we decided to create our first ever BOOM series, where we will focus on a certain topic for a series of interviews.
1: The theme of this series is mobility, accessibility, and design, and we are lucky to talk with some experts in the field.
0: This is our first episode in the series, featuring Professor Kat Steele, who is a professor at the University of Washington and leading her own Reimagining Mobility series with the community.
1: We discuss her research that employs principles of universal design and accessibility and learn how she continually adapts everything from her writing process to her classroom design to be more inclusive of people of all abilities. Welcome to Biomechanics on Our Minds. My name is Melissa Boswell. And I'm Hannah O'Day, and we're PhD students at Stanford University. This podcast is brought to you by the International Society of Biomechanics. It's, it's time, time for, Boom. for Boom. Welcome to Boom. Where we have Biomechanics. Biomechanics Boom. 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 Boom.
0: Welcome back to Boom. We're really excited to be talking with Professor Kat Steele today. She holds appointments in the mechanical engineering, bioengineering, neuroscience, and human-centered design and engineering departments at the University of Washington. And she's recently inspired us through a Reimagining Mobility series that has been fostering community and collaboration through some great virtual events and discussions and just re-energizing Melissa and I. She's also a Nimble alumni from Stanford. And um, we're just so excited
2: to be connected and to have you here today. Well, thanks. I'm really excited to be here. I'm a fan of Boom, so it's been <laughs> nice to be on the other side. <laughs>
1: Yeah, that means a lot for us to hear it, and we're we're happy to have you on as a guest because so many people have asked about having you on because a lot of people are inspired by your work. And we're excited to talk about your work, but before we do, could you share with us what first got you interested in biomechanics?
2: Sure. I was a mechanical engineering undergrad at the Colorado School of Mines, which at the time was a very traditional mechanical engineering program. Uh, We didn't even have biology offered at the university at that time. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't until I did an internship with actually your first podcast guest, Brian Davis, who at the time was at the Cleveland Clinic, that I really got introduced to how we could apply our mechanical engineering principles in a clinical environment. And I just fell in love. And after that, I came back and tried to dive into everything biomechanics I could I worked at the Denver Children's Hospital in their Gait and Clinical Motion Analysis Lab. And through all those experiences, I just really wanted to keep learning more. And I loved the communities that we were working with, kids and families with cerebral palsy and other developmental disabilities. And I just have kept going from there.
1: Yeah, that's amazing. Actually, it's funny that you mentioned that um, because it, it Reminds me of when I was working with Brian Davis and he, uh, I remember when he was first suggesting that I should go to grad school and suggested applying to Stanford to work with Scott Delp. And I remember him saying, you remind me of one of my former students, Kat Steele, and she's doing amazing things. And I, at the time, I just wasn't, I I didn't really know the field very well, but in the past few years, as I've gotten to know your work better and I've just like realized what a huge compliment that was. But it's funny that we both worked with him and then both went to the neuromuscular biomechanics lab at Stanford with Scott Dell. It's funny how things circle back sometimes.
2: Well, it just shows what a great community it is, right? From the very beginning, you feel supported and there's people you can reach out to. And so many of these parts of the community feed back on one another. And it's something that I love about the biomechanics community. It's great to hear about that cycle, because as you just explained your experiences on
0: one side of it, and now you're doing so much on the other side and giving back and really doing a lot of work to help the next generations of biomechanists. And one of the things that you have been doing that we mentioned in your intro is starting this series on reimagining mobility and rehabilitation. And we'd just love to hear more about your work and expertise in this area. But we're wondering, first, what inspired you to start this series? And even before we start there, in like... We know the importance of defining our terms. So what does mobility mean to you? And what do you reimagine mobility to be?
2: Sure. So reimagining mobility is something that has been percolating for several years. And finally, myself and my colleague, Heather Feldner, who's a professor in rehabilitation medicine and also disability studies, decided this was the year to kick it off. We are both part of a new center at the University of Washington called CREATE, which is the Center for Research and Education in Assistive Technology. And whenever Heather and I work together along with our collaborators, there is a lot of both tension and excitement and opportunity around mobility. So, one thing I love about the word mobility is we didn't say reimagining movement. We didn't say reimagining walking. We right. we're trying not to make ability-based assumptions. Mobility can mean so many different things, from navigating and exploring your world to movement and walking and running to socioeconomic mobility. Oh. It just keeps expanding. And so, part of the reason why we chose reimagining mobility is we're not so concerned about staying within the lines of a Gate Lab or traditional lines of movement, but also mm-hmm. exploring all of the unique and exciting work being done everywhere from art to the built environment mm-hmm. to. Uh, education and understanding how all of those work together to hopefully reduce some of the disabling barriers that we know if we all work together that we can start to solve. It was partially an excuse for us to get to talk and explore and build community with different groups that we love working with, but that we often don't see connections between. So we often work both in the rehabilitation realm, but also in the accessibility and disability studies world. And we often don't see many connections between the researchers and innovators between those fields. And so this was also a great excuse for us to start trying to pull these different worlds together and spark some of those conversations that we hope will keep happening through the series.
1: And I've really been inspired not just by the content that you've had in the series, but also the way that you're presenting the series is extremely accessible. You know, even when you start the Zoom meeting, you describe who you are, what you look like to people who might have vision impairments. and there's closed captioning and things like that that are just maybe not seem like huge things, but really do make it so much more accessible to people. And I think like that's another way that I'm also learning from the series beyond just focus of it of mobility. So I've really appreciated that. And I'm curious when you're saying bringing together mobility and accessibility, what are some of the ways that you've seen that that have been the most exciting?
2: So ways that it's been exciting, well, first of all, I want to step back for one second there too. So one thing that you had mentioned there was, and I'm glad that you're picking up on these accessibility pieces because it is something that we're striving to do is we want to continue to increase diversity and inclusion. And so if someone can't be a part of the conversation, we can't include their thoughts and lived experiences. And so that also has been a learning experience for me. Even today, when we had started this podcast, if I had been Heather, I would have said something like, I'm Kat Steele and I speak with a X accent. And it's thinking about, well, if someone can't be listening to this or if they seeing mm-hmm. this or if they're just busy doing something else, what are the pieces that would let them get the whole story? Mm. Uh, personally, I struggle with it because I don't have like a Midwestern accent. I always say that I have like the Colorado <laughs> accent, which is the last <laughs> of any accent. So when it comes to <laughs> audio, I always struggle with how would I describe myself and what is that piece? Yeah. Uh, but again, I really love those accessibility overtones, or you know undertones where we can start to establish these as norms for our conferences, for our meetings, for our classroom, mm-hmm. uh, because they are really small things, but they can hopefully let more people be included. Mm-hmm. But you did ask about what I was excited about in terms <laughs> of m- mobility and uh, reimagining. I'll take one example dealing with wheeled mobility and powered wheelchairs. One of my favorite grant comments was, the world of wheelchairs is solved. Uh, wow.
0: <laughs> and,
2: uh, I think there's still a few issues that need work. Um, yeah. but, needed, uh, but this is an area where we especially see a lot of reimagining options. Mm-hmm. So let's take an example from the wheeled powered mobility world. Something really simple, like if you wanted to figure out a route to get from your home to the airport, you might pull out your phone and look at Google Maps. While Google Maps gives you options for how to get there by car, bus, and walking, and a bike. But what if you don't use one of those modes of mobility? What if you do use a cane, or a wheelchair, or some other mobility device? You don't really have many options. And so one innovation that I love is Access Maps that lets users develop custom profiles or use built-in profiles mm-hmm. that say, I use a power wheelchair or I use a manual wheelchair. And you can even define, for example, the slope or other characteristics that, that are unique to your mobility methods. And not only is it a great way for them to then be able to access and participate and navigate their world, but it also can highlight some of the huge barriers that still exist. Sometimes when you do a really simple path, you'll see that the path that's required is really circuitous because there's curves without curb cuts or too steep of a hill. And so oftentimes I encourage folks to go in there just to try to look at, well, how inclusive is our environment? How well can participants get from point A to point B? Uh, mm-hmm. It's a great tool for that. So that's one from the environment. Another one that I love is Open Sidewalk. Access Maps lets you navigate a Google map-like world. But Open Sidewalks has said, well, how do we identify and highlight those both accessibility features and missing features in our environment? And so they figured out, uh, it's led by John Froelich and his team, that they could use Google Street View to basically crowdsource people identifying curb cuts or lack of accessibility features within their environment. And I encourage folks to go and check out their tutorial. It's really well done. And you'll learn about accessibility features in your environment that I promise you've overlooked before. And you can help to map your local area as well. But those are both great innovations where it's both focusing on the disabling barriers in our environment, while also spurring opportunities for innovation. So, those are two great examples that yeah. I found really exciting
1: about. Those, those are great examples, actually. And it reminds me of Hannah and I were on a run the other day, and then she was like, Oh, look at the cut of the curb to make it more accessible. That's what we were talking about in the mobility series. And I think bringing awareness to some of these things, yeah, it does help us notice mm-hmm. our environment more in ways that I really just hadn't thought about before. So, we appreciate yeah, you kind of bringing light to these things.
2: And I think there's a strong place for biomechanists to join the conversation here. A lot Mm. of these are being led by (coughs) computer scientists or Mm. folks from the built environment, but biomechanists Mm. are experts in how the human body can adapt and change and how it can explore new environments and learn. And I think a lot of that knowledge overlaid with some of these innovations couldn't further amplify these efforts.
0: I think what's cool is when you talk about these things or when you see these innovative approaches, it kind of clicks in my brain and is like, oh, that makes sense. Like, why aren't we doing that? I think someone mentioned this in the one of the Reimagining Mobility discussions that when you come into a conference room, typically all the chairs are around the, the conference table. Why are they not all pushed out to the wall? And then if you don't need a chair, you're not impeded. And if you do need a chair, you can just get one and bring it to the table, kind of underscoring this point that like it it all makes sense like why why don't we just make these changes and so I'm wondering it seems like sometimes seeing that need is really hard for us or we don't have this awareness what are the ways in which we can be better about building that awareness what are yeah ways you've found to do that in your
2: work yeah So multiple suggestions first of all I think it's just something that takes practice and awareness and and so one of my big goals is to train engineers in these topics Uh, We have a program access engineering that both supports and encourages individuals with disabilities to pursue careers in engineering, Mm -hmm. but also to train engineers in principles of inclusive design. And you can imagine in engineering if you can squeeze a little bit of accessibility topics as examples throughout your dynamics and your thermo and your fluids classes that Mm -hmm. those little nuggets will hopefully stick with you because at the end of the day, it's only going to be a small portion of our students who maybe go into biomechanics or go into developing prosthetics or exoskeletons. But for all of them, whenever they're designing an experience, a new product, an environment, Mm -hmm. I want them to be thinking about, well, what are those little tweaks I could make that would make it easier to use, more inclusive? And so I think education is a big one and one that we're trying to provide easy materials for people to integrate into their classes and other training uh, through CREATE and access engineering, access computing, those programs. Another one is to uh, become an advocate and an ally. We need more perspectives in engineering. And so I think individuals with disabilities is another important part of the diversity equation. Uh, we want more of those lived experiences directly informing the problems and the methods Uh, that we solve as a community. And so becoming an ally to help make sure we have inclusive pipelines, to make sure we have inclusive conferences can be another way to kind of amplify, learn more uh, about these efforts.
1: Thank you for sharing that. I think it's really helpful to give some tangible things that we can think about doing. And I'm I'm curious then, after we start to identify these needs a little bit more, what would be the next steps to like actually make some changes to the built environment? If that's something that you have done in your work or yeah, have seen some of these projects kind of carry through to being used?
2: You know, I think that's a really good question. And one that I'm even struggling to answer And I think part of my struggle is that it tends to be so situation dependent, Mm -hmm. which sometimes is taken as a barrier in and of itself, but I actually think Mm -hmm. underlies a lot of the need for changes in our methods for these. So for example, okay, if we're designing and trying to deploy a new innovation, if we try to come up with rules and guidelines that overarch we're not gonna be taking into account the local environment, the local perspectives Mm -hmm. of the users. And so I think the bigger things are one, making sure that you have people who are gonna be using the technology in from day one. We work with co-designers who are people with disabilities or the groups that support them who work with us in our designs. And so understanding their voices and opinions throughout the process. I think another one is prototyping and being open to failure and reversing the process. It's not saying, okay, this is the solution. We're gonna go out and we're gonna deploy it and it's gonna solve our problems. It's, well, let's try this. And then having the grace and the humility to say, did that work? What didn't work? What should we change? Oftentimes there's even competing needs and it's not until you get to that prototyping stage that you can really evaluate and then bring together the communities who might have competing needs together to work together to solve that. I guess just to give a concrete example of that, we were designing one of our maker spaces to be more accessible. And we had individuals who use wheelchairs come in and things that they really liked were tables that go up and down in height, that are on wheels so that they could push them really easily wherever Mm -hmm. they wanted to go. And so those were all great design suggestions. But then when we had another group of users come in who were blind and low vision, they hated that things were on wheels. Uh, They were like, I develop mental maps of the space. I like to know where things are. The fact that tables can change height and that uh, they can move to new locations. How in the world am I supposed to be able to find the laser cutter and the 3D printer? (laughs) And so, you know, there you might just like throw up your hands and say like, accessibility, universal design, what are these different things for? But that's again, kind of a defeatist attitude and the more optimistic and proactive approach is to say, okay, let's bring these groups in together. And most of the time we can find a solution. Okay, let's have textured tape on the floor that shows the the main pathways and routes to get from one location to the other. Uh, So then we know that a table should never be blocking one of these. Let's make sure that the 3D printers are always in a given location and that there's really clear instructions about where and how things should be put back. And so I think it's more Mm -hmm. this prototyping, iterating, not feeling like everything has to become overcome at once and working together as a community to overcome some of these challenges. And I think this is something that Melissa and I have, like, sort of discovered
0: and been exploring is really starting with community and starting with stakeholders and figuring out the needs. And I think it's a little bit in opposition to how I think of other uh, attacking other problems where, like, you want your solution to be scalable or, like, generalizable or something else. But, like, design thinking, it seems to really focus on the needs of a user and, like, really capture them well. Um, and then implement it. And then like you kind of, as you're saying, figure out those other ways to integrate it with the built environment and other users.
2: Um, And I think we, in our last Reimagining Mobility series, we heard from the co-founders of Lucy, who's a a company that's making sensor technology to make wheelchairs safer and more autonomous, -autonomous, semi-autonomous with their users. And one of the things they always emphasize is we start from an N of one, What does this person need? How do I design for this? And then we zoom in and we zoom out to look at different user groups. And it's through that zooming in and zooming out that we actually find the most innovation. And so I thought those were really unique perspectives Mm -hmm. where sometimes when they've tried to go with what the market or what data says is the biggest gap or the biggest need, they said that it always has uh, bitten them in the butt a bit (laughs) because uh, uh, it hasn't been tied to a specific user and so they really mm. value that end of one perspective as a starting point for their design and innovation and it's something that we've seen as well
1: yeah, I remember them talking about that and really appreciating that. And I even asked the question, you know, what, what types of questions I ask people to better understand their needs. And then I thought their response was so interesting and in that they were like, it's not so much about the questions you're asking. It's just whether or not you're like listening to their story. And it's more so about just letting them speak and just better understanding where they're coming from and what's important to them and just letting that be the guide. To, to designing for them. And, and so I really appreciate a lot of their insights.
2: Yeah, we similarly had an, uh, an experience where we're, we're developing an EMG control where people can control their computer with EMG. And uh, you know, we had a little game and a little you know, interface that people could install on their computer. And uh, since they were research participants, you know, they knew that we were also monitoring when they were using it. And one of our users, we just found that, like, oh, my goodness, like, every once a week, he just, like, had a ton of use. And so we finally, like, asked him, we were, like, what in the world are you doing on Tuesdays? <laughs> like, oh, you know, this system is fantastic for my productivity. You know, I can put it on my forearm, and it's so hard for me to press the shift along with another button. Uh And so I use the system, you know, whenever I need to do this intensive documentation. And so that like insight from him in terms of like, oh, well, we wanted him to be using it to, you know, exercise those forearm muscles, but he found utility in it by- Figuring out that he could increase his typing speed by having it attached to the shift key for his documentation <laughs> um, led to, you know, an, a research idea and an implementation idea, and so that end of one, you know, grew out and then into a bigger, a bigger mm-hmm. effort that we could deploy and make the system more flexible for others. And so I always just love those little stories, those little insights from individual users. Yeah, I think that's super powerful, especially because. In one framing or
0: one frame of mind, you could look at that as taking its unintended—you know, using it for something um, unintentional—as maybe a failure or something Um, like, "Oh, it didn't do what we wanted in the way that we wanted." But I like your flexibility and being able to see it as something different and actually innovative.
2: Well, until you uh, get something out in the world, you don't really know uh, how the users (laughs) are going to (laughs) interact with it or how it's going to go. And so, I also think that's a really One of the most exciting parts of research is the translation to see what happens when it's actually out on its own and uh, evolving along with the users.
0: Well, you noted that as a really important part of the process and prototyping and actually failing. And so we're wondering if you'd like to share any research fails with us.
2: Yeah, I knew it was a a boom tradition to talk about uh, research (laughs) fails. And I definitely have a lot of research method fails in terms of accidentally coding things, forgetting to save data. But one of, in my first year as an assistant professor, there were two big accessibility research fails that really stuck with me over time Mm -hmm. and that relate to this reimagining mobility and access and inclusion. The first was when I was setting up my lab, my lab at the University of Washington was the old drafting room. And well, so it ha- still had all the old drafting tables, where which are tables that you're meant to stand at or use a high stool at. And they're fixed and they're standing. And I love them. For people who know me, they know that I spend most of my time standing just because of an old college volleyball injury and so I was like perfect these tables are just right for me I can stand my students can stand like I love these old 60s style drafting tables but then when we had one of our first participants come into the lab you know she rolled in in her wheelchair and I kind of looked around and sheepishly realized oh all of these tables are you know up above her head height She, someone we had worked with before, and laughed at me a little bit, and then pressed the button on her wheelchair (laughs) to use her Elevate feature, um, which saved the day in that instance. But it instantly made me realize, oh, I need to make sure my space is accessible and inclusive as well. And so now we love how cheap sit-stand tables have gotten Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. building that flexibility into the space. So that's the physical space but also on the digital space. Uh, one of the early PhD students I worked with, uh, she was blind or she is blind. She's a fantastic researcher. And when we were writing our first paper together, I you know, started going through my usual process. And I'm a very visual person. I tend to draw a lot of figures. I tend to start writing my paper with my figures. And all of a sudden I realized not only are the figures I'm making for this paper inaccessible to her, but every academic paper that I've written so far has a big inaccessible component to her. She Mm. cannot see the figures that I've put in this paper. And because Mm. we build a lot of our data into those figures, it's largely inaccessible to her. Mm. And so working through that paper with her, learning about which software pieces are accessible and which are inaccessible, how do we make sure that we have data flexibility, great captions? You might want to have both a figure and a table was a really uh, fantastic learning and a humbling learning experience for me. I also at that time realized that my website was not accessible and that we needed to add alt text and other features to make our images and other page more accessible and navigatable uh, for people. And so those were both some big accessibility fails, but that were wonderful learning experiences for me because I think communication, participation, inclusion are something that we have to think about, not just in our education and research, but in all of our physical and digital settings.
1: Yeah. Going back to when you were saying that it's crucial to have people with disabilities on your team so that you can better understand these problems. And now if you're someone that hasn't had that I'm glad to hear that experience from you and you sharing what you've learned from that, because now it's something that I can start to think about. But also, yeah, I think it just really emphasizes the importance of having inclusive teams and how that will lead to more inclusive design. So that was such a, a great example of a, of a fail that's really turned into a great learning experience and not just for you, but for us as well. So thank you. Yeah, and thank you guys for always sharing your research fails also. I think it's
2: really valuable. <laughs> we have a lot of them. Yeah. That's what Definitely. Makes a good PhD.
1: Yeah, exactly. Awesome. Well, before we ask our last question, how can people learn, learn more about you and your work? And even we've been talking a lot about the um, reimagining mobility series and this is coming out later than the sign up for that. But if there's still ways to learn about that, I'm sure um, people would be really interested in that.
2: Of course, yeah. Our main ways are through our website. So through our lab website, uh, you can learn more about what our research group is up to. Uh, Also, you you can learn more about the Reimagining mobility series uh, at create.uw.edu. And we can include the link for the show notes as well. And we have another session coming up with Barry Long, who uh, has been making, trying to figure out how do we make real estate listings accessible? If you're searching for a home, one, why are so few homes designed for visitability? You know, can someone who uses a wheelchair access your house? Can they come over for dinner? Is there at least one entrance that is accessible? But then if you're searching for a house, why can't you say, oh, does it have... An accessible bathroom? Does it have stairs to the entry? Does it have hearing or vision assist? And so he's actually made it so that the MLS listings now can include those features. And hopefully, more of the websites will make these searchable as well. So, very long is our next reimagining mobility speaker.
1: Wow. Yeah. Really looking forward to that. And we'll definitely include those links in the show notes for people to to check out. So our final question is, what are you most excited about for the future of biomechanics? Or um, if you'd like to answer more specifically for ability and and research and mobility?
2: I think for me, one of the big things is diversity. And it's an area that we still have work to do. But even in the decades since I first really started in this field, just the breadth of experience and the breadth of backgrounds that I see, Mm -hmm. I get so excited with all of our current students and all of our current researchers. There's a lot more diversity coming through the pipeline, and that gets me excited. I do still think we have ways to go, but I think the more people with diverse backgrounds, lived experiences, will just broaden the space where biomechanics work can be where we can use this knowledge in new and unique and novel ways. I know ASB now has the diversity group and uh, other groups and just really excited to see more of that continue to grow.
0: Thank you. That I love that you're
2: so community-minded
0: and I think diversity is like such a key part of that. And thank you for all of your amazing work empowering all of this great, you know, change and impact and your expertise and using that to like empower others and lift them up. So Thank you. And thank you for sharing all of this with us today on Boom. We're really excited to share this with everyone else.
1: Yeah, it's been a great conversation and and we really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you all. And thanks for hosting Boom. (laughs) Our pleasure.
0: (laughs) Thank you for listening to Biomechanics on Our Minds. I'm Hannah.
1: And I'm Melissa. Thanks to the International Society of Biomechanics for supporting the podcast and to Peter Washington for creating all the music you hear on Boom.
0: Make sure to follow us on Twitter at Biomechanics OOM and on Instagram and Facebook at Biomechanics on Our Minds.
1: If you have feedback, suggestions for guests, want to share new biomechanics research or research fail, want to host your own episode or be involved in the making of Boom, or just say hi. You can reach out to us at any of our social media platforms or send us an email at minds at gmail.com. Biomechanics,
0: Biomechanics
1: off our minds. minds.